0: Um, today we have the honor of hearing from Josh Vibert. He's going to come and um, bring the word to us. Come on up, brother. Um, I gave Josh a real chipper subject, the story of Stephen, so good luck. Right on. Martyrdom, death, you know, persecution its great. Woohoo. We can all be excited about it, right? Awesome. Well, we're going to, we're in... Acts 6 and 7, right? So if you've been going along with us the last couple weeks, we're going through the book of Acts. And today should be 6 and 7, Stephen, but we're actually going to start in Matthew. Uh, Kind of switch it up on you a little bit. Uh, So let's begin. Um, We're going to read our scripture, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in, okay? So Matthew 13, 18 through 23 should be up on the screen. And this is the second time kind of the parable of the sower is told where Jesus explains it to the disciples. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches it away, what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles." Now, he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you more importantly for your Holy Spirit that you've sent to dwell among us, to be in us, Lord. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to listen, minds to understand, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that your presence would enlighten our understanding into your word, into the knowledge of who you are, and that that knowledge and in your indwelling would change us into your likeness. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So, the parable, why, why start with the parable? Well, I think that the parable, in a lot of ways, is kind of a prophecy, Right, Jesus is he's just kind of turned the entire kingdom of God on its head, right? And we've gone from the old covenant, which is the Mosaic law where we're killing animals and we got all this whole system of of rules and tight controls and stuff, to basically Jesus said, Okay, through through me now all are sanctified, right? As many as believe. And it's not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So we've got, we got a couple things that are changing and shifting here. And Jesus kind of says, hey, look, this is how it's going to go as you guys start to walk this out. So as we get into our text then, in Acts 6, we see this start to happen. So first off, we start with good soil. Now in the days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So... In 6.1, we see there's been multiplication. We've heard, starting back from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, they preached the word and 3,000 came, came to the faith. And then the next thing happens and 5,000 come to the faith, right? So multiplication, right? We're seeing good soil. But we're also seeing some of that other not-so-good soil. We're seeing the, the, the path where the birds are stealing it and the rocks where it's kind of springing up quick and then dying out. And I would submit to you that that's kind of the hearts of the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these, these guys who have kind of been the fathers of the Jewish faith all along. You know, they've been the, the guys that you go to, the rabbi, right? And then all of a sudden they get they hit with this new version of the gospel, this Jesus guy. And they're like, well, y- yeah, yeah, but mm, not so sure about that one. But this one, yeah, but then mm, maybe not. Or maybe they like it, but then you know some of the other Pharisees are like, "Hey, man, we heard you went in the night and found Jesus and talked to that. You, you've knocked that off, or we're gonna cut you off, right?" And so maybe they start walking some of that stuff back, right? And then the thorns, right? So the thorns comes up and chokes. It says, "The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches." Now, what did we hear about last week? If you weren't here, it was Ananias and Sapphira. That's a tough message, right? But the gist of that message is Ananias and fire, let the deceitfulness of riches take them off course. They were participating in the New Testament church right there with Peter and John and everyone else and, and it's happening and they lie about riches. They, they have a piece of land, they sell it for a big chunk of change and they keep some of the money back. And as I understand it, God didn't have a problem with them keeping the money as their money, right? Peter says, it's your, it's your land, whether you sold it or not, you can do whatever you want with it. But they said, this is all we got for it when we're given it. And it wasn't all they got. They, they kept back a portion, so they lied. So it was deceitfulness of riches, right? So you see, really, that parable of the sower is Jesus' prophecy about, hey, look, as you guys start to walk out this stuff, these are some of the issues you're going to have to deal with. This is how you deal with it. And I don't know about you, but when I always heard this parable, you know, kind of growing up, it was always kind of from the standpoint of, Well, when you go out and you witness to your friends, you're going to be dealt with four versions, right? Some people are going to do this, and some people are going to do that. And it's almost pitched as a little bit of this, this is is a witnessing parable, and this is what happens when you share your faith. And I would submit to you that we would be wise to kind of take it deeper than that and understand that it's kind of an ongoing thing as people encounter the Word. You see people, you know, some of these... Preachers nowadays or or in the past for the last 30 years that have gone to these huge mega churches, right? And it wasn't until they were way up here that all of a sudden the weeds and the deceitfulness of riches start creeping in, right? So the point is be vigilant in your faith so that you don't become not good soil for the word of God as it continues to have its work in your life, right? So let's pitch back over into Acts 6 now. So now in those days, we're going to read uh, one through seven. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Porcorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and a whole bunch. Of, you never hear of any of the rest of those guys, except Stephen and Philip. Right? So they picked seven guys. Let's just say they picked seven guys, and I forget the part where I mispronounced their names. Uh, and they said him before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on him. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So this is good, right? You're seeing the word of God fall on good soil, and it's bearing fruit. Now let's, let's break this part down a little bit, this, this thing about the Hellenists, right? It doesn't mean that they were going to hell, right? Uh, <laughs> The Hellenists, I, I looked this up, you know, I'm like Googling and, and uh, what do you call the word? I can't think of the right word for the book that tells you about the, um, not the thesaurus, not the dictionary. Commentary, there we go. And there's all these crazy whacked out theories about what the Hellenists are. But the common theme seems to be basically you got racism going on in the early church, right? These are Greek speaking Jews most of whom were from, you know, so at some point the, the Jewish nation has been brought into and out of slavery through all these different nations as, as God's kind of pronounced judgment on them through the ages, right? So these are people that maybe they grew up in Egypt or maybe they grew up in the Roman Empire like Paul, right? And they're now in Jerusalem and they're the Hellenists because they speak Greek instead of Hebrew, but they're in Jerusalem being Jewish people in the new church, A lot of flux happening, right? Got cultural stuff, got nationalism stuff, and then got religious stuff all kind of intertwined here, right? And so what you have happening is you have Hebrew speaking Jews who are being elitist and saying, well, we are the pure bloods. You know, if if you think about um, what Brother Gary taught about a couple weeks ago about Samaria, right, and who the Samaritans were, right? You hear all about the Samaritans, and that's like just a little bit down the road from Jerusalem. (laughs) You know, oh, you guys are from across the sea. You want to call yourself a Jew? Are you kidding me? I mean, we don't do anything like that nowadays, right? We're way past all of that in the <laughs> church, right? So, but it really—it's—it's it's kind of this prime characteristic of human nature throughout time that people who, whether it's culturally, they speak a different language, right, or they have different customs than us, or socially, right, widows, orphans—not—not not the you know the pompous uh, elite. You know, whatever, whatever the noble type dude, right? Or financially, the poor. And you kind of have all that rolled into one here. You have Hellenists, so they, they speak Greek, not Hebrew. So they're not, they're not the same culture as you. And they're widows, you know? They're not landholders. They're not the nobles. And they're poor. They need, they, they're receiving alms of food, essentially, is what's going on here. These are people who are too poor to get food. And so the church... Is passing out food to these people. And the church, who's supposed to, you know, love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself, is going, yeah, 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 not you, because you don't speak Hebrew. But we're gonna we're gonna help up the rest of y'all. That's what's going on here. It's not cool, not okay, but it's going on. Now here's the deal. It talks about the whole the, the disciples go, well, it's not good for us to leave the work of the ministry and serve tables. And I'll be honest with you, I always struggled a little bit with that verse. Because I was like, Man, get up on your high horse. Like, I'm the preacher. I don't wait tables, right? But in an effort to kind of undo that idea, what I've seen, you know, I've been in the church since I was five, grew up, seen a lot of stuff in the church. A lot of you've seen more of the church than I've seen probably. But you've seen almost maybe the opposite happen in our day where a pastor of a local church says, well, I want to study and I want to teach the word, but I want to love people. And maybe the guy goes so far off course doing absolutely everything that he has no more time. He's, he's, he's you know, praying for the sick, right? He's cutting the, the single mom's grass over here, right? He's, he's ministering to the people in the prison. And then <clears throat> he doesn't have time to pray and seek the word. And really kind of leaves his first love for what is a, it's a good thing. It's a God thing. But this is where that idea of delegation comes in. Right? And the disciples, the, you know, the, the, the main disciples, right? The 12, who, who this problem, hey, this problem of this Hellenist widow is getting overlooked, gets brought to, they don't just go, well, you know, whatever, y'all deal with it. They hit it head on. They say, no, we're going to deal with this. We're going to fix it. Let's, everybody get together. Here we go. And then they don't just pick, like, Luke, y'all, who they pick to be waiters, right? You've been to a restaurant. Do you think that your waiter is a man full of faith and fully the Holy Spirit and doing signs and miracles? I mean, not usually, right? Usually, like if we're, if we're going to host a dinner at the church, right? We're saying say, all right, we need people to serve. Well, hey, brother, can you speak in tongues? Because if you can't speak in tongues, I don't know if you can wait tables over here. <laughs> but but if you look at the qualification list that the disciples lit, uh, choose for these guys, the point is we want to pick someone who is so close to God that I don't have to write a set of rules for them and say, now when you push the food out, make sure that... Man, if that dude is fully of the Holy Spirit and doing signs and wonders and loving people, I'm not going to have to make sure that he overlook, doesn't overlook the people. He's got the heart of God alive and happening inside of him. Right? So how do you have the heart of God happening inside of you? A little bit preview. It's called the Holy Spirit. We're going to unpack that a little bit more later. But the point is, they pick these guys who are absolutely on fire for God, full of the Holy Spirit. So they address it, they address it with these guys. Now here's the thing. The very next verse, chapter chapter 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So, waiter, doing signs and wonders and miracles, right? Basically doing stuff like Jesus did. It doesn't say, oh, he, he went and served the tables faithfully and made sure that the Hellenist widows were never overlooked. That'd be good if he did that. But he's, he's doing that and he's pursuing God relentlessly and he's still doing miracles, signs, and wonders. The Holy Spirit is just so saturated. It's pouring out of him in everything that he does, right? So then as he's out there, as he's doing this, um, there arose a complaint from what's called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Now, this is that cultural thing again, right? So the synagogue of the freedmen is basically kind of the same deal as the Hellenists, right? It's Jews who were from other places, and they've set up their own synagogue that speaks their native tongue, because the Jewish synagogue speaks Hebrew. And one of the commentaries I read, or a couple of them kind of collaborated on the idea that Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, is actually like one of the head guys in this synagogue that's giving this complaint against Stephen. So then what comes in is they start making up stuff and they bring in false witnesses. They bring him before the council, the Jewish council, and they lie and basically say, you're, you're, it's blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy under that law is death. Right? So so here's Stephen. Let's back up just a little bit and recap where we're at. We're well, Here's Stephen who's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He's waiting tables for widows and he's healing people and doing signs and wonders. And then the next thing that happens is he gets brought before the council, these religious leaders, and he's like, I'm on y'all's side. And they're lying about him and throwing him under the bus, charging him with something that if he's found guilty of, they take him out and they stone him for it, right? So, you know, any of the rest of us, if we're, if we're encountered with this, it would be reasonable to maybe mount a defense, Right? I mean, if someone came in here and, and charged you of murder, right, and the penalty for murder in Georgia, maybe you're going to get the death penalty, right? You'd be going out and like finding the best lawyer you could get, right? And Stephen doesn't do any of that. So Stephen, he ends up addressing this and the entire, most of the entire chapter seven is a sermon that's a phenomenal recounting of kind of the Old Testament, how God has dealt with people, is still dealing with people. And how people are then choosing to deal with God in response to his goodness to them. But before we go there, let's see something that reveals a little bit about the hearts of the the people that are bringing the false charges against Stephen. So it says in verse 13, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So there's physical manifestation happening through the Holy Spirit on Stephen. His face is glowing like an angel. I can only imagine that it's similar to what the the nation of Israel saw in Moses when he comes off the mountain. His face is so bright with the presence of God. They can't even look at him. They're scared. And they said, Moses, go away. Go in your tent and hide your face. And you go talk to God. And then you, after a couple days when that glow wears off, then you come talk to us. But that's what they're seeing here, Right? But what are they worried about? They're worried about their customs. They're worried about basically tradition. And and they've they've churched it up and called it religion because they've done it under the name of God, right? But ultimately, it's their, their traditions, their customs, that they're willing to stone this dude over. It's crazy, and we think that that's crazy. And we may not take people by the hand and drag them out and stone them. But y'all, I've seen it happen. We've stoned people in our modern church emotionally and spiritually because they didn't meet our customs, right? Because they didn't sing the song that we like to sing. Or we like to speak in tongues and you don't. Or you like to speak in tongues and we don't. Or the carpet color was wrong. Or you don't have the right instrument on the stage or whatever, right? And it's, it's hypocrisy. It really is. And, and we all know it, but we all think it's not us. Right? And, and, and the, the challenge, one of the challenges out of this today is not to look for it in others. It's easy to see. It's easy to point at X megachurch and say, well, you won't find me going there because they blah, 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 right? But instead, look at yourself and say, oh, God. God, I see that my heart tends to place judgment in this way. Would you purge it from me that I wouldn't see customs, traditions, or my own opinion about something it's higher than a person that you hung on a tree and died for. Right? All right. So that's where we're at. We're at this place where, where Stephen is. He's, he's being oppressed by these guys. They're bringing false, lying charges against him. And how does he handle it? Look in, look in chapter 7, verse 2. And then he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. Brethren fathers you know those are terms of endearment those are terms of familiarity those are terms of giving honor and respect to someone who is not only bringing charges about you but they're bringing trumped up charges against you it's lies they brought in false witnesses to lie and say that you did these things and you say to them brethren fathers like come on guys we're on the same team here just let's, let's talk through this, right? And so we're not going to read the next several verses. You should go read it. It's a great, great history. But kind of the key point here <clears throat> is that over and over and over, you see the nation of Israel harden their hearts against a God who just did massive miracles on their behalf, right? Hey, you know, you guys are slaves in Egypt. We're going to come out. I'm going to do, get this Moses dude. And not only are going to lead you out of Egypt, the Egyptians are going to, like, throw their gold at you while you're walking out of their city, right? And then you go, oh, God, the chariot's in the army. What are we going to do? Right? And then uh, God's like, okay, here's a cloud. So they can't see you. Meanwhile, I'm going to part this sea, and you guys are going to walk across the dry ground between the sea, and you get to the other side of the sea and you go, oh no, the chariots are still coming, right? And then the, can you imagine the ocean and the, the chaos of the sea just crashing in and chariots and men dying? And then Miriam gets her tambourine out and they're, yay, you know, and the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea and they're rejoicing and it's good. And then like two days later, they're like, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. We should go back to being slaves. But y'all, it's us. Y'all, it's us, man. You know, like, hey, God, wow, you got me a new job. You know, wow, we can make our bills. Awesome. Thanks so much. Two months later, oh, God, why did you give me this terrible job? It's so hard. I don't have time for this. You know, it's us. We do it. And we can see it in the nation of Israel. And we're like, well, I bet if I saw the pillar of cloud by the pillar of fire, then I wouldn't, you know. And they're followed after all of that. God says hey look y'all it's real simple I, I've, I've proven to you that I'm the Lord your God and that I love you and I'm going to care for you I'm going to take care of you just just don't worship other false gods if you're going to worship something worship me and they're like I don't know a little golden statue of it looks pretty cool man I'm like make me a golden cow and do something with it and like what are, what are we doing but it's us we all do that right except instead of a golden statue it's Netflix right and instead of a golden calf it's you know, whatever your habitual thing that you go to to soothe your soul instead of laying yourself bare before the one who loves you more than anything on the planet. So Stephen goes through this incredible history lesson and in verse 51, I kind of get the impression he's, he's at his wits end here, right? He's, he's done all he can do. He said all he can said say and he kind of like loses it on him a little bit, all right? So we're going to read verse 51 through 53. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. And so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the ones who foretold the coming of the just one. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the direction of angels. And have not kept it. And so... It's a little bit tough for us to kind of fully grasp this as multicultural American Christians. But if you can dial it back 2,000 years and imagine that you are a Jew, you are part of the, the nation that God has said from back at Abraham of your descendants, I will make more than the number of the sea and you will be my people and I will be your God. He's made a covenant That you, of all the people on the earth, you are the ones that I'm going to champion. You are the ones that I'm going to give milk and honey to. You are the ones in whom I'm going to dwell. What does it mean? What did it mean just, just in the natural, logistically? What did it mean to the nation of Israel to have God, the presence of God in their midst? Well, it meant that at some point, one of their enemies was like, hey, bro, see that golden box? That's where the presence of God is. And if we steal that golden box, then all of a sudden, we're going to win all our battles like they won their battles. Talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Sorry, I'm not trying to, <laughs> not trying to demean it. But, but that's, the, that's what was seen, right? There was true, real power that came from having the presence of God in your midst, And if you go read Kings and Chronicles and these Old Testament books that are just kind of laying out the events of history, you see that on time after time after time, the odds are tipped like way against the nation of Israel in the natural, right? It's like 100,000 versus 10,000, right? And God goes... I'm trying to get it through y'all's heads. It's not y'all, it's me. And guess what? You've got me. I'm on your side. I've made covenant with you and I'm going to be faithful. And time and time and time again, they're unfaithful to him. And y'all, it's us. We have in our hearts the Holy Spirit, the living presence of God, the, the very being, the very presence, the embodiment at which dudes used to like tie a rope around the ankle and put the bells on the hem and with fear and trembling i'm gonna go beyond this veil and god might smite me because that's how powerful this being is and we walk around with that in our hearts and do whatever we want to do like at some point where's the fear of the lord now, absolutely, there's liberty and there's freedom. And we have a different relationship through the blood of Christ. We are called holy. But I think it would do us well to remember, as we're kind of drawing this parallel that Stephen's drawing here, that the Old Testament God and that, every bit of that power and that presence is the same Holy Spirit that's now living in your heart. Keep yourself worthy of being the vessel of the Holy Spirit, right? So, Stephen, 51 through 53, is calling these guys out for resisting the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? Conversely, and maybe an easier question to answer, is how can we live as people sensitive, aware, and open to the Spirit? Well, I think it's, it's, it's the things that we know, but the things that are hard to do on a regular basis, right? Let the word, not culture, not society, not your feelings and not your desires, define for you how you're to live, right? When's the last time you sat down, opened your Bible and said, Lord, I don't understand this verse and this is hard and this seems impossible to me. But it's in your word and so I know it's important. So define for me how I can live this commandment, this piece of scripture. Keep the Sabbath. What is keep the Sabbath? Does that mean I can't go home and cut my grass on Sunday? Am I gonna go to hell if I do that? Well, I don't know. Read the word and see what God would say to your heart. But bow your knee, yield, and let Him tell you that answer. Right? Regular and consistent study in prayer. And a heart that sees and loves people as Jesus truly loves and sees them. I think that it's been a common practice to say in the, in the modern church, wow, you know, I love Jesus, but I'm just not so sure about those Christians, right? Or you hear other people spin it this way, say, man, oh, man, I love God and I'm so close to God, but I'm just a lot closer to God out on the lake or out in the woods than I am on the, uh, on the church pew, you know? If you hunt or fish, that's that's one of the things you hear a lot, you know. And everybody, everybody loves God, but boy, we're a lot closer to God in a deer stand than we are, you know, in the, in the pew on Sunday. And it's falsehood. Because if it were true, then Moses would have never gone back down off the mountain. And Jesus and his disciples would have never gone back down off the mountain. Matter of fact, Jesus, and everybody know the story of Jesus, transfiguration, right? Jesus goes on the mountain, right, of Peter and John, and and then, like... Elijah comes, and, and one of them, I think Peter says to him, hey Jesus, let's build some tabernacles and just stay up here forever, you know? Imagine, if you will, have you ever hiked a mountain, well, yeah, a foothill? We live in Georgia, we don't have real mountains, right? <laughs> but you ever hiked a foothill in Georgia, early in the morning, and you kinda see the fog lifting off, and maybe you're praying, or maybe you've, you're having a little quiet time up there, and you go, well, I've never been closer to God than this right here. And God says, you've never been closer to me than when you're in the midst of people seeing their needs and loving them as I love them. Right? Cool. So, yieldedness to the Holy Spirit as opposed to resisting the Holy Spirit. This is why this is so important. And this is how I want to present this today and tie it back in with Stephen sensitivity and yieldedness to the Holy Spirit sets us up for success in this age and in the age to come. In this age, Jesus said, we will have suffering. We will have persecution. And there will be martyrdom. If you go read Revelation, there's a whole group of people who get to reign in the millennial reign with Jesus. And the reason they get to do that, according to Revelation, is because they got their heads chopped off for Jesus. Everybody's going to sign up for that. That's a real upper. Woohoo! Good, good sermon. Man, yeah, let's get my head. No. But you can't do that. You can't. There's no way you can get your natural self in a position where you're like, right on. Yeah, this is cool. You know, that's why when, when people have these tragic mass suicide things, they, they introduce drugs, they introduce something else that gets you out of your mental state, right? But we have a supernatural thing called the Holy Spirit. And it's not about getting high on the Holy Spirit so I can just go live willy-nilly and I don't care if I die. It's being full enough of the Spirit that you see the reality of this age as compared to the age to come. And you understand that the kingdom of God is on this earth and you're a participant in that kingdom. And you understand that the kingdom of God in eternity is the real deal and the kingdom of God on this earth is just a shadow or a picture or through a veil version of the real kingdom of God that we're going to live through And eternity. And so if you say, be filled with the spirit and it cost me my life. Okay. For what? To live, to die is Christ's gain, right? Absolutely. You know, who cares? It doesn't matter. But if you're so tied up in the spirit of this age and and what you eat and what you drink and what you wear and where you go, how can you endure persecution? Right? We're going to fall. We're going to cripple it. The first little thing. Which of us has ever endured real persecution? You know, and this is meant to be a little bit light and funny, right? You ever been without air conditioner? I was in a church service one time. This, you know, we have the prayer request time, right? And I said, pastor, I don't need you to pray for me. Uh, my air conditioner went out and I just praying and believing for a new air conditioner. And you know, God cares. He cares about your needs. But I think sometimes we ought to question what we think our needs are. <laughs> Right? Because if we in America go, "Oh Lord, my air conditioner' out, I need a new one," how do you think God responds to that in response to Africa people that are out in a tent with no air conditioning and no doors and no windows, and they walked 10 miles to get to that service. Who has a greater revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit? How about wearing a mask? Ooh, that's a touchy one right now. You know. But are, is it, are you suffering for Christ? Or are you suffering because of your own pride? Or your own belief about what does or does not matter? How about church format? Well, you know, I, I think that uh, we, we ought to just all go in the church. And if we're not at the church, then it doesn't count. And other people, well, I'm going to walk on and watch online. I mean, I can get fed just as well online. Why should I get up and get dressed and go to church? Be led. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Love people. Do what you need to do. But None of those things is suffering. And yet throughout this whole COVID thing for the last six months, seven four months, however long it's been at this point, you hear people going, oh, I'm just so ready for it to get back to normal. Man, y'all, I'm right there, too. I'm one of them. I, God, you know, can't, can't, can't we just get to the point where I can... Go buy my groceries and not have to stand six foot behind the person and not have to wear a mask. And if I want to, you know, pick up some chilies, I can go in the restaurant and pick it up and don't have to wait on the curb. Who cares? What difference does it make? You know, what light affliction, right? And then Paul writes what light affliction. And the dude was shipwrecked and beaten and... (laughs) And the point here, guys, is if we see wearing masks and not being able to pick up our favorite takeout food as affliction, we're in for a rude awakening. And you're dangerously, dangerously not in the place of being willing to stand when you're legitimately dealing with things for the sake of Christ. Right? So how did Stephen deal with it? Well... We kind of know the story, right, if you've read, Um, but basically in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord And stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Saul of Tarsus, who was going to become Paul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, if you know Scripture at all, you know that Stephen here in his death, is essentially mimicking Christ, almost word for word. Jesus is hanging on the tree, and Luke 23:34, "Father forgive them, for they know not what they do." And so from the process of being full of the Holy Spirit and chosen to serve widows and orphans and doing signs and wonders, to being falsely accused, just as Jesus was falsely accused and made no argument, made no attempt at self-defense to be willing to lay down his life and even in the midst of death to say, Lord, forgive them, don't hold this against them. You can't say that unless your ultimate heart's desire is to see people brought into the kingdom of life through Christ Jesus. And our little, let me use air quotes, justice heart says, oh man, stone them, they were wrong. You know, we we, we want vengeance. We want all of these things and it really comes from selfishness and pride. The thought that we are somehow important. And Jesus and Stephen had it right. And that's where we've got to get. We've got to get to the place where we don't resist the Holy Spirit, but we we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit to change our thoughts and to change our actions. To change our perceptions and the way we see and perceive things as we go about our daily lives, so that when we're in that moment and we're being stoned to death for something we didn't do, our response is, "God forgive them." So I, uh, <clears throat> it's a little bit of a personal story. I have a friend. His name is John Hollister, and some of you that have gone to our small group have heard me tell this. So um, I worked at a gun shop for about 15 years, Um, was in the industry quite a bit. And, you know, I was young at the time. I was in college for a lot of that. I wasn't in college for 15 years. Uh, (laughs) I started working there in college and then, you know, kind of kept on with it for a while. Afterward. But, you know, I was young, I was 21 years old, you know, and and everybody that worked at the shop besides me was active duty military and law enforcement, and then you had some old, salty, retired military and law enforcement guys. And to me at the time, in that environment, they were just the coolest thing in the world, and I wanted to be like them, right? And this one dude, Hollister, would come in, and he didn't work there, he was just a a regular customer. And Hollister was kind of like Gimli the Dwarf, man. He was, Hollister's like this tall, and he has a white beard that almost gets down to his, to his waistline and pure bald on top. And so you don't know whether to laugh at him or be terrified of him and kind of both at the same time, right? And so I got to know Hollister a little bit. So Hollister, I said, hey, John, listen, man, when I'm, I was going to Georgia Tech at the time. So downtown Atlanta, you know, there was a fair amount of crime around that area at that time. They had not turned down one of the projects that they have now since torn down. And so there's, you know, students on campus getting, you know, mugged and, and stabbed and stuff. So, hey, John, listen, when I go to the BP at North Avenue at midnight and the dude comes at me, bro, what, what do I need to do? How do I, you know, how, my holster and my gun and my draw and how do I do all this? And John looked at me and John goes, you missed it 12 hours ago. I was like, what do you mean? He goes... When you didn't fill up your car when you were at less than a quarter of a tank at 12 in the afternoon and you had to pull into the BP in the shadiest part of town at midnight, you've already, you missed it 12 hours ago. You have set yourself up for failure and you want to know how to fight the fight after you've already lost it. He said, get your mind right and you'll never be in that situation. So... If we take Hollister's lesson and we kind of think about it in terms of what we're talking about, it sounds similar to a story Jesus told about ten virgins, right? And they were told, hey, keep your lamps full of oil and keep your wicks trimmed because you don't know when your lover's going to come back and call for you. And that, that parable is always told, you know, kind of in this, you know, Jesus second coming and you better be ready and... And that's good, should, should be used in that context. But we can absolutely apply it to our lives and our battle with the enemy, right? So we are gonna go out and we are going to encounter the world and we're gonna encounter he who is called the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, our enemy, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And things are gonna happen and it's not gonna be fun for our flesh and our body in this age. But Jesus counsels us not to worry about those who can kill your flesh and cannot harm your spirit. And, he, and he, he encourages us to have a mind unto eternity, mind unto the next age, the age to come. So let's not worry about how we're going to fight the battle that's going to come at midnight in BP parking lot at North Avenue. Let's go, hey, get in the word every single day. Submit yourself, your will, your mind, your emotions, everything about yourself to the Holy Spirit. Check yourself up. Say, God, am I, am I, in, am I in the middle of your will? God, I'm, I'm walking into this meeting at office right now and I, I don't know what to do. This situation just seems unbearable to me. God, my, I just found out that my parent has COVID. I'm terrified. What do I do about this? I mean, it's real stuff, right? But don't live in the fear. Live in the power of the Spirit. It's within you. But you can't expect to call on the power of the Spirit in your moment of crisis if you haven't fostered the relationship with the Spirit day in and day out. All right. Last thing. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God to us on this side of heaven. Without him, we're lost. Through him, we can see, walk, obey, and follow God's will to love, help, serve, and invite others into the kingdom. Ultimately, all men and all women are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters to us in the kingdom of God. We need to see them that way. We need to love them that way. And even to the point where they're throwing stones at us, we need to be able to say, God, forgive them. All right, let's pray. Lord, in some ways this is a heavy word. And in some ways it's a very liberating word. Because apart from you, we are lost, and we are broken, we have nothing, and we don't see a lot of hope. But Jesus, I pray that the, the, the words of Scripture would become vibrant words of hope in life and that we would cling to them harder than we've clung to anything ever before. Lord, that we pursue Scripture as relentlessly as we pursued toilet paper and hand sanitizer and masks and whatever in the moment we thought was going to save us. Lord, let us never turn from relentlessly pursuing you. And I ask for grace. And I thank you, Lord, that when you do see our hearts turn to you, even in our lost brokenness, we just turn our eyes and we say, Jesus, help, Holy Spirit, come. That you would fill us. That you would give us extra measures of grace for this age. And that as we near your coming and things get even more tumultuous, Lord, that we wouldn't be moved, that we wouldn't be shaken by what we see happening around us, Lord, but that we would have a firm foundation in our relationship with you, a firm foundation on your word, a firm foundation of your Holy Spirit alive and breathing and able to give us guidance minute by minute, hour by hour in our lives. Lord, we yield. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and fill us. Fill this place, Lord, with your presence. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.